Hey everyone, it's Ben. I'm wanting to thank you, our listeners, for being such huge supports for us and for the amount that you get into contact with us. On Facebook and Twitter, we absolutely love it. And every time that we check out Reddit and G+, how much we get mentioned. It's amazing. If you are able to and want to support the show financially, you can at patreon.com slash Way. Thank you, and now on to the show. I drop into the gunnery bay and adjust the seat. Why is everyone on this crew taller than me? And I switch on the targeting computer. Okay, why are these pirates after us again? Like, why are they after us again? We got revenge on them. You can't get revenge on revenge. That's, that's, that's against the rules. I push the throttle forward as we dive towards an imposing sea rock freighter. Is this Conjure Club? What did we do to them last time? Like, get them kicked off the wheel? It was our time we bet on about delivering a dozen wrath charts to Bespin. Or maybe it's Black Sun this time. I, I can never tell the two apart. I don't know about Kanji Club or Black Sun. These guys definitely look like an independent outfit. Maybe it's just a gut feeling, or, you know, maybe it's the pink and orange paint scheme. Somebody has a flair for the loud and eye-catching. We'll try to stay alive long enough to find out on this week's Tales from the Hydean Way. We're your hosts, David Pickering, Ben Yendel, and Becca Black. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about house rules. Some of this is going to be why we do them. Some of it is just some guidelines that the three of us use, because I know that Becca, David, and I don't use the same house rules. Some of the things that Becca does, what David does, and what I do, vastly different things. <laughs> this has come up on previous episodes, which is the reason why I'm thinking we should be doing this, so that we're actually having the discussion explicitly instead of just in the background. One of the things that is actually a very common thing to house rule or experiment with is the relative strength of force powers. One of the, I don't know so much as I would say problem, but one of the things with the Edge of the Empire system is that it takes place after Order 66. The way the force feels in this feels a lot like after Order 66, where if you are really good at using the force you have a lot of experience in the galaxy writ large. If you're going by just the base rules that are in, like, Force and Destiny or Edge of the Empire. If you're wanting to play another Time Eras, like, say you're trying to do a Jedi Padawan in Age of Rebellion, the amount of experience that a Padawan has by the time they get out into the field is so massive in comparison to anyone else. They can use the force so much better. And they, like, they're jumping. They're sensing things. They've got the influence thing pretty much down. Some of the bigger powers they may not have, but all the basics are there. Using the base rules are going to feel very constrained if you're going into a Clone Wars scenario. Yeah, I feel like the force rules in the book are kind of limited because of how much experience it takes to unlock these powers and because there are so few powers that are explicitly named in the books like you can't really have a fully fledged jedi without using some kind of homebrew to some extent 
Like, what do you have? You have sense. You have like four or five different main force power suites, and then skill trees based off of that. And the kind of stuff that we see the Jedi using in like the Clone Wars or in the prequels or whatever is so much more than the rules that we've been given. What I end up doing in in my games is basically just a home rule of common sense as far as the Star Wars universe goes, where if you think that you should be able to do it, then you have a shot. If you've taken an advanced force power and skipped over some of the more rudimentary ones, it doesn't make that much sense that you should be able to run before you can crawl. Mm -hmm. If you can influence someone's mind, you should then thereby be able to move a small object with the force. Okay, I mean, I could see that. I could definitely see the argument for it, sure. But yeah, this is why you have house rules, because people don't necessarily always agree. Exactly. I guess that's kind of the reason why I like the different areas within the force powers, because there is the different sort of focuses that people can go. But if you're willing to do it that way, that totally makes sense. Yeah, and and, and I mean, that's why I like house rules, is you can tailor it to fit your playgroup's desired experience. Because to me personally, I love the way they've done the Force powers, because to me it really captures the way that the original trilogy felt as far as the Force. You know, it was a subtle thing. It wasn't like space wizards, really. Like, even in the, you know, Luke at the height of his Force power was, you know, moving things with his mind. He was doing a little bit of, you know, telepathy, doing some jumps and things that he really shouldn't have been able to do, and blocking lasers. It was sort of a, a subtle thing. He wasn't shooting lightning out of his fingers, which is what the Emperor was doing. <laughs> you know, I've always felt like the prequels went a little bit overboard, and I know that's some people's style. It's a little bit more almost anime-ish to me at the power levels that the Jedi were operating at in the prequels. They're over 9,000. So to me, I really like that if, if even if you invest heavily in the Force, it's not your go-to solution for everything. You have things that the Force helps you with. That's really more what it is to me. The Force is there to make you better, at what you're already trying to be good at, but it doesn't replace your skills. Unless you, like, crazy invest in it, you're not going to be a quote-unquote wizard. Like, that takes years of experience to, to get to the point where your force power usage is something awe-inspiring and visible and, and crazy, where you're lifting buses to throw them at people, or jumping up 80-foot cliffs, or doing the things that you typically associate with Jedi and this time period, I guess, just because of what we've seen them do in the movies and stuff. Yeah. But I really like it. So to me, when I house rule the Force, I tend to give people a little bit of an easier time getting more Force powers, but I do limit them to stuff that they've already known. Like, I don't, I don't just let them try anything, but if they can explain to me why their Force power should be able to be used in a certain way, I might give them setback on a test. Like, if, if someone has move to the point where they can lift a small object and they want to lift a bigger object, I don't prevent them from doing it. I just make it really hard, because they're trying to do something they haven't learned. Like you said, they're trying to run before they can walk. They theoretically know how to pick up something big, because they can pick up something small. It's just a lot harder of a task. Yeah, I don't mean to make it sound like I just let my players do whatever. Like, obviously, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna respond to my player's Jedi character wanting to shoot lightning out of her hands with a, sure, yeah, go ahead. You failed your last three attempts at moving a key <laughs> out of somebody's pocket, but go ahead, try and electrocute somebody with your hands. 
it's it's more of a thing where like my rule of thumb with pretty much every tabletop game is that the only need for a dice roll is if there's a possibility of failure. And so if it makes sense narratively for somebody to be able to use a certain force power, like something as small as, you know, jimmying a lock with their mind (laughs) or, Mm. or, you know, picking something up, then sure they can do that. But if it's something more important then they're definitely going to have to roll for it. And there are obviously going to be limitations, like, no, you can't shoot lightning out of your fingers, or no, right. you can't fly. This is, of course, Star Wars. It's not the Marvel Universe. It's not DC. <laughs> so it's like, if you want to play a superhero, there are games we can play a superhero game, but this is Star Wars. You wanted to play a Jedi, and a Jedi is not a superhero. They just, you know... A little bit mm-hmm. more... They're enhanced. <laughs> they're enhanced people. <laughs> I tend to think of them more as almost... I mean, and this is sort of what they're based off. I think of them as kind of like the Shaolin monks of Star Wars. Like, yes, they're not yeah. doing like crazy kung fu, but their lightsaber is kind of that thing. And, you know, they're doing things that are amazing and they shouldn't be possible. Like mystical Shaolin monks, you know, taking blows to the face and not even, you know, <laughs> believing it or, or crashing through stones with their hands and all these things forming a ball of water between their hands <laughs> yeah they're they're people who can use the and let the force use them to the extent that they can do extraordinary amazing things but it's not like oh i have the force now i believe i will pull a star destroyer down like the force unleashed is particularly ridiculous but i love it <laughs> but it's completely ridiculous and even some of the stuff they were getting into in the expanded universe where they were talking about Sith Lords who could blow suns up with their mind. And I was like, <laughs> really? That seems like it would take a lot of mental effort. <laughs> uh, that's the Star Wars crossover between Limitless and the yeah. Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> Becca, in one of the previous episodes, you had talked of one idea on how to make people feel a bit more Jedi-like. And I depending on your time period, I kind of like it. Like, as I was saying, like, the Clone Wars, I could actually really see this, was allowing people on most roles that they do just to toss in their Force dice and use that for their skill roll on top of whatever their skill is. Yeah. Ooh, I can see that. Yeah, that's what I usually do when somebody wants to try out a Force power that they don't have technically, as long as it's, you know, a Force power that makes sense for them to know. Or at least have the theory behind. And these are ways of pumping up a character to feel a lot more epic and a lot more Jedi-like. First off, doing that, and then also only making them roll when it is something that there is the question of failure. Those are sort of the two big things that jump out at me as fairly good house rules. Oh, well, thanks. (laughs) The reason why I'm saying that is... It's shaping the game to be what you're wanting to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and we did something similar when we were playing the New Jedi Order campaign I ran a while back, where they mm-hmm. played as the command crew of a big Nebulon B frigate. And we were just dealing with, like, uh, one of the guys was sort of, we called him the away team leader, but he was like the ground force. He had he was like the commander of the New Republic Marines. So if they needed to send someone ashore, basically, to go look something, he was sort of in charge of that. And he always had a squad with him. So we were like, well, how do we handle this? Because I don't want to run, 
yeah, he didn't want to run a bunch of minions, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to run a bunch of his minions like during the game. So what we ended up doing was treating him like a member of a minion group. Like his skills would go up <laughs> in a requisite area by one step. Like we'd give him an upgrade for every minion in his squad who was doing the same thing, which made him hard to kill. But it also meant that as he took shots, he had to decide between taking the hits himself and letting his minions take them. Because I wasn't giving him free minions. Like, if his minions went (laughs) down, they were dead. And until we got back into, like, a port where he could get, conceivably, recruit new marines, he couldn't have more of them. So it's like, oh, well, if you get your whole team killed, I'm not just handing you the keys to another squad of marines. See, and to me, I'd be more willing to house rule that as squad rules than the actual squad rules. Yeah, I think this was before there were squad rules. We were kind of flying by the seat of our pants with this one. Because this was a couple years ago. So many house rules are, it's like, eventually something comes along and that would be great. Like, there's a structure for doing duels that is now out. Uh, Fly Casual has it. When I read it the first time, I was like, how are people not doing this already? (laughs) And the basic structure to the duels in Fly Casual is essentially a social role of trying to psych out the opponent and then the taking whatever's done on that role and applying it to the bonuses and setback from it applied to the combat role that follows, and both shoot at the same time. In some ways, it's one of those really... Seeing it there as a structure is great, but also as GM, it isn't that far out of out of the realm of us being able to just sort of create it ourselves. Yeah. At one point, I was trying to figure out how to make a martial artist in Edge of the Empire or whatever, and this was before Notice Integrations came out. So I was taking a look and also trying to figure out how Starship Combat worked. Believe it or not, the two of them actually are fairly similar. Because melee combat and starship combat, they can feel similar. So I was coming up with a fair amount of ideas on how to apply, like how gain the advantage works in starfighter combat versus how to do that in a melee situation. Or how something like evasive maneuvers would work in a melee situation where everything is going up against you is upgraded once, but every time you're attacking, it's also upgraded. And I was trying to apply all the starship maneuvers to personal scale maneuvers. And it kind of works, but it's also rather messy. But it also opens it up to so many other places where people could use it, instead of it just being the martial artist specialization. That is really interesting, and I really like that idea of adapting the starship rules, because I think they provide a lot more fluidity and motion that the the martial artist kind of needs. Like, the idea of positioning mattering. Because in Star Wars, like, positioning matters, but not enough to need, like, any kind of map or anything like that. It's just sort of like, if you are in cover, or can you see this guy? Which is great, because I like the way it keeps the game flowing. First two times I ran a Star Wars campaign, I was running it on Roll20, and I was using maps and trying to run it like it was D&D, because I didn't get it, because I don't want to play <laughs> D&D. I had only ever played D&D before. So I was playing it, and I was like, man, this is a weird game. Like, I don't really get this. And then somebody was like, well, it's because you're playing it like a, you've literally created a dungeon and sent your players through it on a map. <laughs> and you've assigned distances to how close and far the ranges are. And I was like, oh, I did do that, didn't I? <laughs> so there's an example of house rules going wrong, because I picked all the wrong mechanics and stuck them into Star Wars. Right, right, yeah. How do you guys handle range bans, by the way? Because, like, I <laughs> I am kind of a stickler for the rules as far as range bans go, and so is um, my buddy Adrian. But then in our last 
wacky Star Wars adventure, our friend Dan was GMing, and he kept equating range bands to firing distances on rifles. (laughs) And, like, he was like, okay, well, I figured this distance is, like, the maximum focal length on an M16. Okay. The majority of the party was like, Dan, what the heck does that mean? And I was like, uh, the last gun I fired was an AR-17. It's similar, but not quite. What are you talking about? Use, like, city <laughs> streets. I can absolutely see that. Like, I can, I can totally see where that player's coming from. Yeah, like, it's, you can see where it's coming from. But, I mean, the books lay out a certain parameter for range bands. And it seems like every player that I've encountered, other than Adrian, who thinks very similarly to myself, has a different idea of what each range band means. Well, I think it's because even though they do lay it out, it's also intentionally left a little bit up to your discretion as to like what qualifies as what. It's mm-hmm. not that granular. They, like it's not like Pathfinder or D anD D or or oh, <laughs> Lord help you, Shadowrun. <laughs> Where it's like, the range of this is like 400 meters if it's the first shot, and then it gets shorter if it's the second, and, you know, it's not, that's not what they do. Yeah, it's like, up to several meters. Yeah. You have to yell to be heard clearly. You know, it's not really super consistent, but it's sort of like, you know, if my players are having a shootout on a spaceship, like on a, like, you know, their, their freighter gets boarded and they're having a gunfight in the hold, like, I tend to think of it as, most of it's going to be in close range. Maybe if you're standing at one end of the hold, firing at the other end of the hold, I might impose medium range, but only if you're, like, on a pretty big ship. Yeah. And engaged range is just, like, if you're close enough to punch the guy. Right. One of the things that I've always sort of gone back to, at least the separation between medium and short range, mm-hmm. has always been, I run Edge of the Empire beginner box a lot. And because of this... I know the inside of that bar, like the back of my hand. Yes. And the GM description for that is from about the midpoint in that bar to the door is short range. Yeah. From the stage in the back to the door is medium range. Oh, that's a good one. Like, And I'm not assuming that that's the end of medium range. I'm assuming medium range actually goes further. Right. I've always sort of figured short range as being beer bottle distance. How far can you huck a beer bottle? That is generally short range. Yeah, I'm thinking like if you're if you've played Knights of the Old Republic, which you may or may not have, I'm not actually sure. The Ebonhawk. It's only a twenty year old game. Yeah, no. The Ebonhawk has the room where Candorus stands. It's like the mechanics wing. That's kind of the room size. Or like I could use a really obvious example instead of this obscure one that I'm doing for twenty years past the game coming out. And the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> In the Millennium Falcon, which is like the Ebonhawk, only way more easy to explain and picture in your head, because, you know... It's actually been in a movie? If you're in the back of the Millennium Falcon, in that big room with the Dejarek table and all of that... I'm not I'm not familiar with the Millennium Falcon. Can you describe it to me? Well, it's like the Ebonhawk, except... <laughs> <laughs> or we well, could go see, really crazy here like and say... hamburger with two pickles? <laughs> If you're on the Starship Enterprise and you're on the bridge, oh, pretty okay. much yeah. all of that is going to be short range. Most of well, that. Well, no, actually, I think I've seen a picture of the Enterprise next to the Millennium Falcon, and it's enormous. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, like the bridge pretty much could fit the Falcon. <laughs> yeah, the bridge is the Millennium Falcon. Maybe I'm thinking of a different bridge. 
But generally, I would call short range... Close range is close enough that you could easily see the facial features of the person you're shooting at. Medium range is sort of, you could tell their build and generally what their face looked like. You know, like, oh, he was, you know, kind of tall and his face was sort of, he had a beard and he was wearing an eye patch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not police lineup kind of thing. You can't see their faces very well. And long range is sort of like, you know, when you watch like a war movie and it's like, oh yeah, I can see the guy. Like, I know that that's a person, but like, you know, I couldn't <laughs> describe him to you. He's over there. You know, I know him. <laughs> I see him just enough to shoot at him. If we're to go with the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, personally, I go with everything to the captain's chair is short. And then if you're wanting to go like from one edge of the bridge to the other, it would be medium. Yeah, I mean, depending on which bridge you're talking about, because I think of the the one on the original show as being pretty small. Yeah, most things in most rooms, I'm considering short range. Like a bar is actually a fairly big size. It's going to take a long ways for you to get to medium range. And then, yeah, if you're engaged, well, you're obviously close enough to be able to punch someone. Yeah. I think in the in the gaming question, Dan was describing something as at long range, but pursuing us. I made the, the crack comment that was just like, oh, so there's no hurry then. We can just walk. They're, <laughs> these are like giant centipede things, and they have to get into engaged range to attack us, so there's no worry. <laughs> well, as long as you're putting... We're putting distance between us, yeah. As long as you're doing that, you get like three rounds. Like, that's three whole minutes. Yeah. Well, okay, that brings up what I just said there brings up another house rule that kind of shows up a lot, is how long are your rounds? Oh. I usually describe them as a scene, so I don't really consider it a specific amount of time. Combat encounters usually happen pretty quick, so I get everybody's actions and then I describe it all at once as a sort of cinematic experience. And I tell them, like, this happens and this happens and this happens in quick succession. And so it's never really a matter of, like, how many minutes it takes. So the only the only time that I really bother with how long something takes is when it's a matter of hyperspace getting from <laughs> one planet to another. Or, or getting from one place on a planet to another place on that planet. Totally makes sense. David? I generally tend to think of them about a couple of seconds, maybe like anywhere from five to maybe 15 seconds, depending on what they're doing. Like if it's a straight shootout, <laughs> we tend to be pretty quick. Like, oh, he's fired. Oh, he's fired. You know, they're, this guy's punching. <laughs> like, Excuse me. She sneezed. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it's fairly quick. Uh, I, I generally give them about enough time to say a sentence if they want to talk during the rounds. Because my players are the kind of players who like to make plans elaborately. And I'm like, wait, you guys, how yeah. are you having this conversation? Like, <laughs> the co- <laughs> you know, the stormtroopers just burst in the door and suddenly you guys are like, well, if we go over there, we could flank them. And then, you know, they're, they're shooting at you. What are you doing? <laughs> so I limit them to one sentence planning when they're having these fights. So I tend to say a round is like enough time to yell, jump behind those crates or something. And, but if there's a, you know, if they're in a chase scene, it might be longer. Or if they're driving a car or like a speeder or something, then, you know, it just, it depends. Like that's one of the things that I always really like and also kind of try and get from a GM on what they're attempting to do because what they intend as a round is so very different. For me, a round is anywhere from what the plot 
requires to a minute. Yeah. The reason why I'm asking is, and then I found the page number. Woohoo! <laughs> page 198, Edge. According to FFG, it's roughly a minute, but in the end it comes down to it's whatever you need it to be. The only time that I actually have cared that it's gone up to a minute is running dead in the water, which has a certain number of minutes right. between the start and character death. Beyond that, around is however long you need it to be. Yeah. Like, and yeah, going from the 5 to 15 seconds, I totally get that. I've run in systems that have that as a default, as I think back to Rifts and its 15-second rounds, <laughs> where I learned. Again, it's kind of coming back to what kind of gameplay are you wanting. Okay, this is a place where I do kind of want to toss in the one other question I have. One other sort of basic things that most people don't quite realize is a house rule forum. Like, everyone has their own house rule for it, but they don't really realize that it is a house rule. Giving out experience. Like, how do you two give out experience? Far too liberally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I guarantee that as compared to the way it's written down, I guarantee that you're giving out experience more liberally than what's in the pages. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the other hand, so do I. So Yeah, I, I try and base it on um, how many dice rolls have been made, or if there haven't been any dice rolls, then actions that have been taken. So if it was a fairly action-packed session, and my sessions usually run three to four hours on average, if there were, say, I don't know, three or four dice rolls in that three to four hour span, they'd probably get 10 experience points for the session. If they were joke rolls, like I want to roll to put on my sunglasses or I want to roll athletics to high five my friend, then maybe they'll get five. <laughs> Come on, that cool roll was needed. <laughs> okay, so when I was playing Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines... I am the the joker of the group that will always say, roll for that, when somebody wants to high-five somebody or open a door or <laughs> look up the weather on their phone or something. You know, little innocuous things. I'm not even the GM of that game. I just sort of compulsively say, okay, roll athletics to high-five the person. Sometimes the GM will be in a, in the mood to just humor me. So I was playing that game, and my girlfriend tried to high-five a statue. And I was like, okay, roll athletics to high-five the statue. <laughs> the GM said, actually, you know what? Yeah, do that. Oh, do no. That. Oh, roll no. athletics. <laughs> and so she rolled horribly. <laughs> and broke her wrist <laughs> oh, no. I was actually I've been listening to so far one of my favorite live plays on a podcast and it's it's Call of Cthulhu and they're playing through the sort of like most infamously long and difficult campaign that's ever been written for that called oh, Masks boy. of Nye or Lethotep uh -huh. the first thing that happens like the first thing that happens is they get called to go to this hotel room and meet one of their like mutual friends it's the it's the adventure hook like this guy calls them and he's like hey i need you to come meet me at this hotel like come up to my room and i will uh tell you what's been going on and so they get there and he doesn't answer the door the first thing that happens in the entire let's play is that one of the characters tries to 
bash the door in after they realize they can't get in and they're hearing noises from inside and they're getting worried. He rolls so badly to bash the door in, the GM says, oh, well, you just dislocated your shoulder. Take this many points of damage. Oh, boy. (laughs) And then the the psychiatrist in the group tries to fix it and rolls a fumble. Like, he rolls a 100 on a D100. And he's like, well, you just gave him three more points of damage. You've made it worse. (laughs) And so the party doesn't get into the room until far too late because they were defeated by a door. That's awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and it just goes downhill from there. <laughs> and thankfully, the link will be in the show notes. But yeah, to, to get back to experience points, I, I usually give them about 10 per session if they've done like reasonably a, a reasonable amount of plot seeking and, and investigating and actioning. You know, on lighter sessions, they maybe get five or they don't get any at all if all they did was sit around and talk to each other. But one house rule that I've implemented, like, at the start of my very first campaign and kind of kept through most of my campaigns has been arguing for more, where I will award experience, I'll allow people to make an argument for, like, five extra XP if they think that something they did was particularly cool or something that somebody else did is particularly cool. My players luckily are not usually that selfish and so they they very rarely argue for their own sake and they always sort of try and say, oh well our mechanic did this really cool thing and we wouldn't have been able to complete the adventure without that really cool thing so i think she should get more experience for that or oh well our sharpshooter made an impossible shot because they flipped a light side point so i think they should get more experience points for that Hmm. you know it's subject to my approval obviously um but sometimes they'll remember things that i don't or they'll make good arguments for getting a little bit extra and i'll be like okay yeah I, I can see why you would want to get more experience for that and how that's earned. So go ahead and take five more. I kind of like that. I, I like that. It's never it's never more like ten. <laughs> it, it's just like a little bit more. That I think I might try and implement in my own home games. Probably not heroes, just in case <laughs> Dark Cross listeners. Heroes <laughs> is going into an interesting phase with experience that you'll hear on <laughs> heroes. <laughs> I tend to be somewhere in the middle of that. I like it when my players suggest things, because sometimes they do suggest like, oh, hey, well, he should get experience for this. But I tend to give out between, I want to say between like 5 and 15 on most sessions. I tend to try and give out similar amounts to the players, but I don't always give them the same amounts. It's mostly players who roleplayed well, I tend to give more experience to. Mm -hmm. If someone did something particularly cool, usually once per session i'll just think of the, like the person who did the coolest thing and they get extra experience points and if the party as a group did some had like a big challenge or a big like gateway in the campaign like a big milestone they tend to get more i think i've given out 20 xp in a session before but i tend i tend to be a little bit conservative with the experience points just because i find it weird when characters go from being the weedy dork you found behind you in class to like conan the barbarian over the course of the week that they were looking into some weird thing the imperials (laughs) did yeah power creep is always sort of the weird thing to me in rpgs where characters are like a year ago today 
I was level one and didn't know how to do anything. And then I went on an adventure and found a dragon treasure. And now I know how to cast the spell that summons the devil to eat Cthulhu and blow up the world. (laughs) (laughs) I sympathize with that a lot. But that's just me. Okay, so for me, anyone who's listened to old Order 66s, they'll know where this comes from. And it's kind of coming back from people trying to make sense of it when Edge was still just coming out of beta at that time. We're looking at the section and, well, okay, per session, it's like 10 to 20 experience. That's a target, so let's call that 15. We're gaming for like three hours, so let's just call it 5 XP an hour. And I've kind of gone with that ever since, until my most recent Thursday campaign. And that one, that one, because Joshua was in it and sort of egging me to go higher, I went with 25 to 30 experience per session. You learn a lot about getting high-level characters at that point. <laughs> and they started off at night-level play. Oh, boy. Starting experience, plus 150 to start with, and then I think over the year it was in the realm of 500 experience. I had a guy with five force rating at the end. Jeez. And if we had gone on for like a month more, he would have had his six. Oh, my gosh. If you want to look at it that way, one of the quick and easy ways of getting... People feeling like Jedi quickly is just shove experience at them. (laughs) The thing that I've been finding fun is kind of going back to, like, I've been reading friends like these for a while because, well, that's where Heroes of the Hydean Way is going. And I've been looking at, because at the end of every section, it has dole out this much experience per action done. If you have done this there, the party gets this much experience. If the party does this, the party gets that much experience. And it's very focused on objectives. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things I've, in kind of prepping for tonight, I kind of want to go back to two different sections that try to say the same thing, which sort of shows how, again, it sort of comes back to the whole do what feels right for your game. But I want to read the first awarding experience section and I'm wanting to read the most recent one because they're different. They're actually surprisingly different. The first one is on page 301 of the Edge of the Empire book. And a very similar one can be found on page 316 of the Age Rebellion core book. And this one says, The GM should award experience after every session... The amount awarded is typically 10 to 20 XP per character for a session of two or three major encounters and a handful of minor ones. An additional 5 XP bonus may be granted for reaching key milestones or completing story arcs. Playing to a character's motivation also grants 5 XP per session at the GM's option. The GM may consider awarding an extra point or two of XP for exceptional role-playing or highly clever thinking. Published adventures may recommend XP awards. The GM should give players an idea of the source of their XP. For example, they may receive 5 XP for avoiding a bounty hunter and another 5 for successfully transporting their cargo to their client. Any bonus XP that is awarded should definitely be explained to the players so they may aspire to those standards in future sessions. Maybe the amounts aren't quite, don't need to be that rock solid of, okay, you've done like one or two large things and you get a couple experience for that. But the intent I really like. Well, it's kind of like what Becca was saying. You're doing something and this is why you're getting the experience. If you're not doing anything, well, why are you getting experience? I like that. I think it's a little bit more granular than I would do it just because 
I'm not one for sitting down and thinking through every character's actions and deciding whether or not they deserve these like random experience points. And I like to, I honestly like to keep it in divisible by five chunks just to make it easier on spending it for the players. I, I am very much the same way. If it's not divisible by five, I'm not giving it up. Yeah, <laughs> the GM for um, Lucky Sevens, Riley, he made our lives very miserable by awarding us one point per bit. So, like, every time we made a joke, he'd give us one experience point, but he was terrible keeping track of the jokes. And he would (laughs) also just, like, throw out random numbers at the end of a session when we demanded XP, and he'd be like, uh, 12. And we're just like, what are we supposed to do with an extra two experience points? (laughs) Yes! Good question. I kind of, I like the idea of the experience actually being coming from the experience of the players or of the characters. Well, both. Yeah. To me, I like the idea. I I totally agree with David that it's hard to be granular to it. And I also like the idea of yours, Becca, of letting players essentially argue for theirs or their teammates' experience. I could almost say that that could be a way of getting people to tie into what other people are doing around the table. If you want to be a bit more of a hard-nosed GM about it, you could say something to the effect of, you can't argue for your own experience, but you can have someone argue for yours. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's really helpful for building the team dynamic and keeping everybody on the team side, essentially. Because sometimes, you know, character personalities can clash if you're not careful. That's... So very true. I had mentioned it a little while ago, and I do want to at least get this. For the awarding and spending experience points in Force and Destiny, page 320. I'm mentioning this because, well, I've got the book in front of me, obviously. Edge of the Empire, their first core book. Force and Destiny is their last, well, their most recent core book for Star Wars. And it's got kind of an extra paragraph in here. And I'm just going to read this extra paragraph. And it starts off kind of like how the last one did. The GM should award experience points for every session. The target amount to award per session varies depending on how fast the GM wants the characters to advance. A slower rate of advancement is typically 10 to 15 XP per PC session. This enables players to spend their XP about every other session. Moderately paced advancement sets the target at about 20, which enables a player to buy a new talent, raise a skill, and so on once per game session. For the quickest advancement, the target is 25 XP. It is better suited for shorter campaigns and becomes hard to sustain in the long run, and I can attest to that. (laughs) It works, and it is absolutely doable. The implication there, I like, on account of its, well, how fast do you actually want your players to be advancing their characters? Yeah, exactly. And that's different for every GM. It's different for every playgroup. Yeah. Yeah, because some people want to be advancing pretty quickly, and some people... Are like me, and they're misers about it. (laughs) I would prefer having my players advance at the speed of plot. Well, that's the other thing, is how fast are you wanting them to? Like, for heroes, I'm really thinking of going with a modified milestone approach of... As they complete different milestones within a particular planet or portion of the adventure, that's when they get experience. Right. That makes sense. Which kind of is tying it into plot. I was just thinking, 
I have no idea how feasible it would be to implement this in a tabletop game because it's such a... So in, in various video games, because I've been thinking about video games all day, <laughs> <laughs> in various video games, leveling up is a matter of collecting a certain number of items. So um, the most ready example that I have at hand is in Resident Evil 7, you collect these antique coins throughout mm-hmm. the levels. And wh- once you get to the safe house in the trailer, there are these bird cages, and inside the bird cages are various things that help you level up. Like there's um, an injection that increases your maximum health, and there's an injection that increases... There's a magnum pistol that's something completely else. worthless because there's no ammo in the game for it. <laughs> there is ammo in the game for it, actually. <laughs> I never found that ammo. I bought that gun and I just like, <laughs> I felt so cheated. I was like, I bought this this expensive, cool looking gun and I never used it. Yeah, there's there's ammo in the very final level. It's like hidden underwater or something like that. I bought it like way early in the game because I was like, I'll save up for it and then I can find all the ammo for it. Anyway, derailing the conversation. You use the antique coins to unlock these upgrades. So I wonder how hard it would be to implement something similar in a tabletop game where experience is or not necessarily experience but advancement is based on how much of a certain thing they've collected so like if as gm you scattered a collectible throughout the storyline and your players are introduced to this concept early on and have to therefore seek these things out it might not be applicable to a tabletop game because it seems like it'd be hard to manage, but it could also just be like a matter of keeping a list and then marking off when somebody looks for one. If I was implementing that in the Star Wars system, I would be doing this kind of like extra experience to reward exploration. Yeah, it could be like um, in the Freemaker Adventures, they're looking for shards of a crystal. Uh, yes, the Kyber Saber. Yeah. <laughs> Watch the Freemaker Adventures. I need to catch up. I, I haven't even finished the first season, I think. Since we're getting up there on time, yeah, I just have one last question okay. for both of you. As far as uh, dice roll mechanics, do you guys have any preferred homebrew rules that you've implemented? Because in my games, one thing that has happened is if somebody has a completely ludicrous number of th- threats or advantages, we've we've set up a system where if you have five advantages but no successes, you can trade in those five advantages for a single success. Or if you have five threats, you can trade that in for a, a single failure just to make things a little bit easier to keep track of rather than being like, well... I don't know what to do with all these threats and advantages. I would rather just fail this role. <laughs> so sometimes we do that. Well, this may be somewhat weird. We've always done one with the dice where... Because you know how like, a certain number of advantage can equal a critical or a triumph and all of that? Yeah. yeah. We've also done a thing before where if you roll a lot of advantage, can sort of... I'm butchering this. Okay, so three advantages of triumph, right? Yeah. It's a critical. Yeah, it's, it's a critical, and you can, yes, like a, like a triumph. You can use the critical, that's what I mean. It's like rolling a critical, or rolling a triumph on an attack. You can use it on a critical. That's what yes. I mean. Um, 
or to west, depending on your weapon's rating. But what we do sometimes is we've said that for advantage, you can use it to flip one of the dark side points back to light, just without a negative consequence. Oh, interesting. Because that's A, pretty rare, and B, I just sort of see it, and we've sort of seen it as, no, you've done something so good, or you, you, you know, your advantage is you've swayed the force. You may not be consciously aware of what you've done, but my players have definitely used that a few times to get out of jams where they used all their destiny points early. That's a really good idea. Yeah, I kind of like that one. But yeah, it's rare that they get four advantage on a roll. Hmm, true. On the other hand, the times when they get six and no successes. <laughs> yeah. It makes it feel a lot more worthwhile. <laughs> I do have one thing that I'm pretty sure is a house rule. I haven't seen anything to truly back it up. I've also not seen anything that explicitly says it's wrong. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I, haven't, I never really go looking for that much saying that my stuff is wrong. Is with minging groups. Like, you know how with when you're going up against rivals or nemesis or players or player characters, when you hit and say you've got a crit two weapon and you get those four advantages, you can essentially impose vicious one on it. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Every time you re-crit on a rival or a nemesis, you go up plus 10 for whatever the crit roll is. Yeah. With that's explicitly in there. I have taken a variation on this and applied it to minions. To me, that essentially means that you are doing a second critical to the rival or nemesis, and it's causing the hit to be worse. So to a minion group, I consider this a second critical. So, say they do enough damage to actually hit. Say, uh, let's go with a Stormtrooper squad. So, they get their 10 damage, that knocks down one Stormtrooper. My Stormtrooper squads are usually 4 or Mm 5. Let's go with a 4 in this case. Some of my guys actually are, at this point, high enough with advantages and yellow dice and whatnot, so that they get that, get that 10 damage, and get enough advantage to crit twice, or say they get enough advantage and a triumph. So they're criticaling twice. I have them essentially do, like, raw damage, they have enough to take down one stormtrooper. Then they critical to take down a second, and then I have them essentially critical again to fell a third minion. So, like, chaining the attack. Essentially, yeah. And this is where, kind of going back to what I consider a round, it's because I've really feel that like the role is for the one shot to get through or the one that actually matters. Otherwise, it's kind of like a cop show or something like that where they're having a shootout and no one's hitting anyone. They're just shooting to keep other people's heads down. Yeah. And then every now and then someone ducks out from behind cover and lines up an actual shot and shoots. Mm-hmm. And that's how I've always sort of figured the round went. And that's the reason why it's like, okay, we're just dumping out enough fire in this direction to knock down three minions. Yeah, that makes sense. Between that and I also impose an improvised on most improvised weapons. I know it sounds silly, but I it feels like it should. <laughs> I mean, it makes Which sense. Which in the end doesn't really matter much to how it's being used. I think it's a setback. <laughs> we have actually tried requiring a triumph to get a crit. It's, I wouldn't say it's good all the time. But I think especially if your group struggles with coming up with things to do with advantage, like I know, especially back when I was first starting with my group, they didn't really know what to do with advantage. Like they were new to RPGs, not just Star Wars. And that was, you know, that's a very open-ended thing. Like something good happens. So they would kind of always go for the easy thing. Like, oh, I rolled enough to crit. Okay, I'll crit. Like, I don't have to think about that. Yeah. So for a while I was like, well, what if we try saying you can only crit if you get a triumph? 
and they were willing to try it. And we had some creative stuff come out of that because people were suddenly like, oh, I have three advantage. So something really nice has to happen, but I can't critically injure them or something like that. So then that's when you started getting the really crazy stuff like, oh, well, I, I hit his jetpack and now he has to like fly a certain distance in the wrong direction every time he goes. <laughs> now he has to fly into the Silac. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> that's a cool idea, especially to learn. Yeah, that is a really good idea. It'd be a fun exercise, even if it isn't something that stays implemented for a long time. We've kind of gone a little bit on the long side, but we've had some really good discussions. David, Becca, what are your final pieces of advice for using house rules in our listeners' games? I think my final thought here is to offer a little soundbite that I'm going to adapt from something my dad once told me while I was driving on the freeway. Oh my god, oh my god, we're all gonna die? <laughs> no, um, when I, w- when I moved to Colorado for college, I had to drive myself over there instead of flying because I had to move like all of my furniture by myself. And so we loaded up our horse trailer, and it was a rental horse trailer that had it, it like had been previously a rental horse trailer, but we bought it. And and so it still had the signs on it from when it was a rental. So it had on the wheel guard, when you look in the rearview mirror, it says, you know, do not exceed 55 miles per hour or whatever. And so I was going 55 miles per hour because at that, at that point I was like 19 and I was very nervous about driving and I didn't want to break the rules and get a ticket. And my dad kept being like, Becca... Becca, drive faster. Why aren't you... Speed up. Speed up! And I was like, but the sign says... He's like, okay, Becca, it's a sign, not a cop. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, the rules are not the GM police. You can do whatever you want as long as it works for your game. You don't need to adhere 100% to the written words in those books if you find that they're not working for you, or if you find that something you've come up with out of your own imagination works better. Yeah, I mean, this is a game system. And I guess this will segue into my last thought here, is uh, this is this is a genre of games that's really not like anything else. Like in a video game, the rules are pre-programmed. You can cheat, you, but you, you kind of break the game to do that. In a board game, like it's vigorously play-tested. It's meant to be played a certain way. And even in those, they sometimes have house rules. Dang you, Monopoly. <laughs> but with RPGs, most of what's happening is is happening in your mind. It's an imagination. It's collaborative storytelling. It's not like a board game where at the end of the game, you total up points to see who won. It's not like you can revert to a T-pose and clip through the wall. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's constantly after every... At game night, my wife's like favorite little joke is to say, did you guys win afterwards? Because she knows it doesn't work <laughs> like that. But I always say yes, because I mean, ultimately, it's all about, did you guys have fun? You yeah. know, if you've had yeah. fun, you know one. And there's no rule in the book that isn't malleable to that end. Like, you can pretty much do whatever you want as long as you guys are having fun. Yeah. So I have played with rules lurs. Oh, yes. I have actually finally got to the point where I punted one. I was just reading out not too long ago, the really their suggestions on giving out experience for characters. At no place does it say the GM will give out 10 to 20 experience per session. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say that. It says may, should, stuff like that. Yeah. It's leaving up to the GM and the playgroup what feels good for that group. 
what's a GM willing to do? What the play group is willing to do? In the end, really for a group, there is one rule. And David, you said it. Did everyone have fun? Mm-hmm. After that, everything else is a suggestion. Yeah. They're just guidelines. And have fun at your table. One final tidbit from me. Sorry for kind of going off on this weird tangent, but it's the dice roll. The rules are the start of the game. They are mm-hmm. not the end. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens at the table starts with the rules and starts with the dice rolls that come out of them. The story, the fun, is built upon that. And if something is constantly being a thorn in your side, then that's got to go. Mm-hmm. Whether it's tossing morality from your Force and Destiny campaign because you just can't get it to work right, or rolling morality like every four games because that's the only way that players actually accrue enough conflict for it to matter. And seriously, there's like an entire month's worth of episodes in just trying to figure out how to use morality. Oh, yeah. It's whatever works at your table. If you don't want to use something, don't use it. If you think that something is crucial, then do everything you can to make it work. Exactly. Yeah. I have no idea how the Sea Rock is still flying. Four of its engines are on fire and its little dishes are trailing along after it. Lining up for Becca to get a killing shot as a familiar voice comes over the comms asking for David. I Blanche. I know that voice. I haven't heard it for a long time. A very long time. Like, ever since I accidentally recorded over it long time. I knew mixing up those holotapes would come back to bite me. I mean, hey, it's not often that a weak way as well known as Hondo Onaka leaves the tape of his first ship's launch day lying around where, you know, anyone could tape over it with their audition for Imperial Idol. Anyone could have done it! I make sure my comm channel is directed at David. This one's all you, buddy. I ain't bailing you out. Also, this tone in my voice? Imagine this as a facial expression, please. The look I'm giving you. Find out if we sell David out on the next tale from the Hydean Way. You can find show updates on Twitter at The Hydean Way, and I'm at Shadowblinder without an E. I'm at AKA Agent Shades. And I'm at Deuterium Ice. We're all at TheHydeanWay.com, where you can find previous episodes, links to things we talk about in the show, and our live play podcast, Heroes of the Hydean Way. Our podcast is on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, where you can find more episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us. Drop us a holocom at talesoftheheideanway.com. We're also on Facebook as Tales from the Hydean Way. If you like what we do and want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash theheideanway. I drop into the gunnery bay and adjust, adjust the seat. Why is everyone on this crew taller than me? And I switch on the targeting computer. Okay, why are these pirates after us again? Like, why are they after us again? We got revenge on them. You can't get revenge on revenge. That's that. That's against the rules. I push the throttle forward as we dive towards an imposing sea rock freighter. Is this Conja Club? What'd we do with them last time? Get them kicked off the wheel? Uh, it was that time that we bet on delivering a dozen ra- It was that time we bet on them. <laughs> it was that time we bet them about <laughs> delivering a I'm sorry. I just thought of like a Rathtar cow. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. 
Well, these here are Devonshire Rathars. <laughs> these are my Jersey Rathars. <laughs> the milk they produce. <laughs> Ain't nobody want to drink that. <laughs>